Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to welcome everybody to this evening's Mauer Report. If you're watching on YouTube, you get the benefit of the new studio. Eh, it's not quite great yet. I've been moving around. Anyways, so it's a work in progress. Waves a little. Those people who insist that I do this. Yeah, I'd rather just do audio. But anyways, enough about me. Before I forget, the views and opinions of this program are those of the host and guest and do not represent any sponsor, affiliate, uh, or anybody else. They're just views and opinions. The hate mail goes to the guest as usual. If you can find an email address for him. Ah, just kidding. Uh, before I forget, duckpond.shop as well. Go over and buy a t-shirt. Good t-shirt weather. Um, almost no shirt weather, but we'll keep that to ourselves. My guest today is Andrew Grill, Chef Andrew Grill. Um, you may have seen him on the Food Network or the Cooking Network or any number of places. This guy's a busy guy. He owns uh, 26 uh, locations of Snapfish Seafood, which sounds delicious. Andrew, how are you doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you being here because uh, for the last, oh, I don't know, three or four weeks, I've been, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big guy, right? So let's just cut to the chase. I like to eat. Uh, but I've been I've been concerned. I'm just going to jump to the start and the heavyweight stuff first, and then we'll get work our way backwards, I guess. But how how is this COVID mess affecting your business? Well, I mean, you know, it's affecting our business the way in which I think it's affecting just retail all around. I mean, you know, revenue drops, um, a lot of unknown, which is never good, changing the operations, changing the calculus of the ways in which we we operate as a restaurant, forcing us into avenues of revenue that, uh, you know, we don't necessarily control all the revenue, i.e. third-party delivery. And, uh, you know, that's kind of been the initial hit. Um, we've got 26 restaurants across the United States, so each market is dealing with it differently from both the operator's perspective as well as the consumer mindset. Um, and we're funny enough, in some of our markets, we are up huge amounts year on year. And in other markets, we're just, you know, we're deep diving down. So hard to find patterns, but there's certain common denominators where we can pick things out. And the other, the fascinating thing for me is because when you started this, this started out, of, I don't want to say out of the back of a truck. That doesn't sound necessarily the way it was, but you started this as a food truck. So uh, for you, probably being a little more agile and mobile and having some other mindsets before kind of helped, I'm sure. Certainly. I mean, flexibility is really stitched into the operations itself. So, that you know, being able to pivot, being able to dodge and weave, it's somewhat difficult when you start to get into a franchise institution that has 26 different locations with different franchise partners. But it's still right there. The DNA is in it. Um, but, you know, I always joke, I say, you know, if I have to go back to just selling lobster out of the back of a Cadillac, I guess that's what we got to do. <laughs> I, okay, so let's, let's go back now that we've kind of... Um went way forward first let's let's go back what made you want to i mean what made you start a food truck well you know so um my history my background i'm a jersey boy growing up uh on the coast of jersey fell in love with seafood at an early age and as uh you know as i worked my way through summer jobs i i, I also fell in love with the kitchen and uh you know that took me into my calling culinary arts etc so i traveled around and Worked my way through various restaurants, fine dining, upscale hotels, Ritz-Carlton, etc., but ultimately landed my way back into Jersey and opened up some restaurants along the shore there. And in 2008, when the economy took a turn, where they were down, downsizing, and, uh, you know, I stepped away and decided to take on a role uh, actually managing a nonprofit program with the Aquarium of the Pacific out in uh, California. And the idea of the program was promoting the consumption of seafood, but sustainable seafood, well-managed seafood, U.S. wild-caught seafood, as well as farmed. And uh, they wanted a chef with a marketing background, et cetera, to run this program. So it took me out to California. And, you know, I was running this program, and I was working with fishermen and restaurant operators and restaurant owners and consumers. And I realized that people want to eat more seafood. They love seafood, but they were confused about it, and they didn't necessarily know 
what the right types of seafood were. There's a lot of fear-mongering in the press about mercury and PCBs and all of these negatives. On the one end of the spectrum, you got white tablecloth, fine dining. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got greasy fried seafood. And there was really nothing approachable in that middle that features just really good kind of boat-to-plate seafood. So coming out of this nonprofit program that I had run for a couple of years, I said, I want to start a restaurant. But, you know, post-recession, hard to raise capital, private equity with really no assets and nothing behind it. So I just, you know, I said, heck, I'm going to leverage everything i got i'm gonna get as many credit cards out as i can uh basically lease a food truck and um connect with the fishermen who i can create relationships with by virtue of that program make a two or three item menu and uh you know just sling some high quality fine dining quality seafood off of a food truck and uh try and kind of redefine that sweet spot between fine dining and fast casual and uh, we did it all through the food truck and the beauty was at the time we were kind of on the forefront of these, quote, gourmet food trucks. Not many people were doing it. So we were able to kind of blaze our own path and uh, set certain standards, leverage and build a lot of brand equity, get some of that media exposure, et cetera, that, that I then rolled into the brick and mortar. So that's the uh, exhaustive story there for you. Well, that's not exhaustive. That's inter- that's, that's why you're here because to go from managing a nonprofit to the, from the Jersey Shore to nonprofit to food truck to restaurant – there's a lot of ground in there. A lot of life experience is going to pay for us here tonight. I get the feeling. So talk talk me now for this next transition from food truck to brick and mortar because I mean I've seen some places go the other way. So why, if it was if it was working, why um, try something different? I guess is my first question out of that. Yeah. So by design, I never wanted to run the food truck long term. I knew that I was uh, entering the food truck world in a time where the government had no idea what was going on, right? And by that, I mean, you had these, you know, kind of roach coaches rolling around in SoCal for a long time, health department, um, city businesses, city licensing business, everybody was kind of turning a blind eye to it. So I almost slipped my way in before all the regulations and all the uh, fees came in, right? Everybody ultimately wants their cut. So when I got in, I knew, okay, I've got to make a huge splash. And if other people are going to follow, I got to then get out. The goal was to scale this seafood idea across the brick and mortar, uh, you know, landscape. I never wanted to be a food trucker, if you will. Um, what, you know, I mean, look, I love hard work. It was great. But I mean, getting up at six o'clock in the morning every single day, loading the truck. I was the only employee in the beginning, get connecting with the fishermen, um, driving the truck for lunch, dinner, and then the post bar crowd. I'd get back at like two thirty in the morning, turn around and do it again, four hours of sleep. I mean, I was six foot eight before I started. I'm about five ten now. So uh, <laughs> definitely takes its toll. So we, yeah. you know, we built it up. Actually, went went from one to uh, one to four food trucks over a six month period throughout Southern California, and then just drove them all off a cliff and went brick and mortar. <laughs> drove them off a cliff. I can understand that. And then, okay, so you went brick and mortar. How did th- I mean? How was that received? We w- it was received really well because we were able to bang the drum with what our goals were as a business. So from the very beginning, we were always marketing, hey, this is a stepping stone. Wait until we get into our brick and mortar. We're going to be able to expand the menu. So I was constantly rolling out new items on the food truck every single day, rewriting the menu, developing new features. So I had a loyal following of guests who just wanted that kind of exciting, fresh, whimsical menu. So my messaging back to them was, don't worry, when we get into the brick and mortar, we're going to be able to play with a lot more seafood. We're going to be able to have a bigger palate. We're going to be able to expand the menu. So when we went into that brick and mortar and opened the door for the first day, it was it was exciting because it was all of our loyal food truck fans. Now, we never made any money on the food trucks. We actually lost money. Um, and I knew that was going to be the case, right? But the idea was it was essentially a pre-opening marketing campaign. I called it a mobile marketing campaign. So, you know, we kind of undercut the market a little bit in price. We ran high cost of goods, um, but we developed a loyal following. And we were able to do that and hook people in such that when we went brick and mortar, it was it was guessed right off the bat. Man, what what, what I'm just going to stop here because as we're, we're progressing down the train, I like where we're headed. But I, I want to pause and, and honor the fact that you just told me a few minutes ago that you leveraged everything you own plus credit cards into this business and now i'm sitting here as we're on the verge of brick and mortar and you're telling me you're taking you're taking a loss on it so you're you're really betting 
on this brick, I mean, brick and mortar working out well. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, it's a gamble, right? So, I mean, it's like going up to the blackjack table and just waiting for that streak and you've got to burn a ton of money before the dealer starts losing. And once you hit that high and you start winning, that's when you start doubling down and waiting to split and, uh, you know, making sure that you can make big plays. So that was, uh, that was how it played out for me. <laughs> it's just phenomenal though, right? I mean, to the average person sitting here listening, I want to make sure they, they catch all of that because that's something, I mean, I think sometimes we all, we, well, we all, get a little safe in our business practices and um, aren't willing to uh, gamble on ourselves. So it's good to hear that you did that. Okay, so you opened the first one. How long, I mean, you got 26 of them now, so how long, is, how long does it take to get from one to two and then out, out to shoot? One to two is difficult, right, because you're doubling. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and that's the thing. If I doubled today, that would be one hell of a feat, 26 to, uh, you know, 52. But the... The, the interesting element, right, was this is where I hit the hurdle. And this is where it's really difficult for small businesses to get in and break into an industry that's really taken over by a lot of private equity, big money, overinflated valuations, is that I had to, I couldn't find real estate, right? No landlord was going to take, take a bet on me. I didn't have a balance sheet with a half a million dollars on it. So when you go to a landlord, you've got to be able to have the balance sheet to say, hey, if I go bunk, you've got at least two years of cash you can pull from my personal guarantee before you find a new tenant. So what I was seeking was I was going door to door and asking businesses, how much longer do you have on, left on your lease? And if they had, let's say, a year left on their lease, I'd say, let me buy out the rest of your lease because that way the landlord is only taking a risk for a year if they're subleasing to me. So I found this guy um, out in Huntington Beach, down in Huntington Beach, who owned this bagel shop. And I mean, it was awful. Right. I mean, awful bagel shop looked looked like it was, um, you know, designed in 1965. It was he was probably serving the same bagels from 1965, literally. And he wanted out. So I said, how much to buy the business? About twenty five hundred square feet. So he's like, yeah, give me the guy wanted fifty thousand dollars for the business. Right. And the landlord said, well, if you buy this guy's business, you got a year left on the lease. I'll let you take it. But you got to put down a twenty five thousand dollars security deposit. So now I'm like, shit, I'm going to be, you know. $75,000 in, um, and I'm going to need at least another 60 to build this business. So I had to go and raise, fundraise about 140000 75 of which was poof, went into nothing, if you think about it. So that was the, the most difficult. So when we actually looked up, we didn't have tables. Um, we didn't have, um, I went and just took some old plywood and I painted it with chalkboard paint, put the menu up on there. I mean, and I had maybe two or three employees. So it was uh, it was an interesting it was an interesting start. So okay, so you got started, and how did you get to two then? Because like you said, that is doubling. I mean, that had to have been uh, quite the the thought process. Or were were you all? I mean, you have been faking big this whole time, so you were faking two, three, all along. Well, yeah. So then, then at that point, it was a matter of once you once you turn key, right? Um, you, you know, it's it's so hard to understand this now because it's almost become accepted in business that you lose money and yet you still have a valuation. I mean, right. You look at this, for example, nowadays to make it contemporary, you look at the Grubhub, uh, Uber eats theoretical merger for a company that's being valued at like, what is it? Like three or four, you know, even more billions of dollars that's never made a dollar before. So for me it was, okay, the only way I'm going to make it from one to two is by cash flowing off the bat. The minute we open the doors, this has to be a profitable enterprise. So that was, it, it was just grinding making sure that every single day we counted every penny, making sure that we're cash flowing and putting it aside to build out our next location. So how long did, how long did that take? Because, I mean, honestly, um, I, I've looked at the timeline. I'm still blown away by this all. So. so what we did was we got our first year in, and we were able to prove out the unit economics, you know, that this could be profitable. And at that stage, I actually did hit the road and tried, tried to raise money from banks, get loans, you know, little equity guys, family funds, and everybody said, come to me at 10 locations. Come to me at 10 <laughs> locations. I said, well, you know, how do I get to 10? They're like, I don't care how you get there. Get to 10 and we'll invest, right? So this kind of eureka moment, um, the light bulb went off that, what about franchising, right? I've got this strong brand. I can license it out, take development fees and royalties, show another, um, you know, strong business owner who's got a high net worth how to operate this thing, and I can create a revenue stream without having to put the cash up, right? Um, so it's really a growth vehicle, almost a financing vehicle of sorts. So 
we started franchising at one location. I, um, I retained a franchise attorney, brought on a franchise broker, um, filed and registered my franchise disclosure document with the FTC. Um, you know, at which for those of you that don't know what that is, imagine going to the DMV and filling out paperwork for six months straight. Yeah, I was gonna say all, all I'm hearing is dollar signs, broker, agent, paperwork. Well, so when you don't have dollars, instead <laughs> you're giving everybody a piece, right? Yeah. You know, it's okay. Like I, I had to bring on an attorney, right? So I gave up equity to the attorney, and then you give up a piece of the action to the broker, and you give up a piece of the action to this person and that person. So before you know it, you know you're you're shaving your own skin out of the game, um, but what you got to do right you always want to i'd rather have a smaller percentage of a much larger pie so we started franchising and um brought on some really good franchise partners and just kind of you know grew through that avenue which is remarkable because you you said you're across the cut you're in i want to say 15 different states if i counted correctly yeah 16 um we've got one location in london so you're in hash i has that had to be more paperwork <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh my! Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, at, at that point, you, at that point, you're just making up words and legal documents. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm sure there are some. Well, the English, the English, the English translator, so to speak. Oh. <laughs> I'm. All, you know, I, I kept. I, I kept. Spell check kept popping up on color and labor. It's the O U R. So. Through this, through this whole mess, have I mean? You said some locations are up and some locations are down. Have, has anybody come to you looking for a new business, but like as a franchisee coming, trying to as we come out of this, or we, am I too soon? Well, you know, I mean, I think that there, look, there's opportunities here, and in all negatives, there's always a positive, right? I mean, it's the law of physics: um, equal and opposite reactions. So there's there's now it's incumbent upon us as as um, you know entrepreneurs to find okay foresee what are the positives going to be so pivoting the business model to make it a lot more um, lean delivery friendly um, possibly drive through friendly consolidated menus look there's going to be a surplus of real estate coming out of this I would suggest that maybe forty to fifty percent of uh, restaurant retail is going to go under which is going to leave landlords with a surplus of of um, supply which naturally is going to you know, decrease demand and drive down prices. So major deals to be had. Um, and then, you know, it's the consumer mindset and the psychological behavior that I think everybody's trying to figure out because we could open tomorrow. The governors could all come out and say collectively, you know what, let's put COVID behind us, business as usual. The consumers aren't going to behave in a way that they did pre-COVID, Right. I mean, th- th- there's going to be a detrimental effect, you know, a post-traumatic effect on the psychological behavior of the consumer. So how do we pivot the model to be congruent with that behavior? And that, those are the things we're looking at right now coming out of this. I guess the other thing, I'm sitting here looking at this. I mean, I'm for, I told you I was from Western Pennsylvania. So that is, this is not necessarily a seafood haven. So you're, I don't want to say you're limited, but you kind of are, right? by just trying to get stuff freshly sourced? Yeah, so what we do, our secret sauce, is that I contract directly with the fisherman or the processor. And, um, you know, many people don't know this, but all seafood is frozen at sea, unless it's crustaceans like lobster or what have you. All fish is frozen at some point. So the idea of fresh fish, it's been frozen. It's been flash frozen. And actually, the majority of... um, and, And sushi has to be frozen. That's how they kill the parasites. So think the freshest fish and sushi but it's been frozen so the beauty is if you can find a good processor and good seafood that's been properly frozen at sea blast frozen you can manage a one-year supply of seafood and distribute it nationwide and you can have the same beautiful piece of fish in western pennsylvania that you could have you know in southern california along the coast so long as your supply chain is properly managed and that's our model um so you know we we pack and you know we pack our own proprietary seafood it's all the same. It's sourced the same. And then in local markets, we do interact with fishermen to bring in whatever their local catch is as well to pepper in, um, you know, different seasonal options on the seafood side. So um, that's the beauty of seafood, and I think people, do, people don't understand that. So I, I caught your tweet. 
earlier today about this this kind of question about imported seafood. Uh, well, I got it here in front of me. I think um, about how much how much of our thirty. Let's see, about thirty percent. Wait, seventy percent of our seafood's imported. That seems high to me. I mean, does yeah. that seem high to you? I mean, is that why we're talking about this? Uh, it used to be 80%. It's actually come down a couple of years ago. It was up up around 80 I mean, the third largest trade deficit behind oil and automobiles is uh, is seafood in the United States. Um, we are we are at a massive deficiency in regards to import-export because we import so much seafood. Uh, and you want to hear the scary thing, uh, and I don't want to you know scare anyone away from eating seafood, but uh, only 2% of that seafood that's imported gets inspected through the uh, ports of entry by FDA. Well, how do how do how do we get so far out of whack? I, all I hear is about this farm farm grown. I don't want to say farm grown, but sustainable sourcing and all this other stuff. So it's not even is. I mean, is that all just marketing hype then? When it well, comes to it, fish? no. I mean, you know, you can international seafood can still be incredibly sustainable. Um, you know, really, the only thing that would that would be an externality there would be the carbon footprint. But you know. Once again, if you're buying it from a stock of fish that's not being overfished and the fishing um, method doesn't harm the surrounding ecosystem, that's a huge positive. But in terms of the trade imbalance, really two things are happening. Number one, a significant amount of U.S. seafood is caught and shipped to China. It's processed in China and packaged, and it's sent back to the United States. So just think about how inefficient that is. But the reason that exists is because of the you know, I mean, labor is much cheaper over there, right? So it's still cheaper to do it that way. There's something broken in our in our own supply chain, um, probably deeper, too deep to get into on this podcast. But in addition, for me, the real the real point here is that the majority, and and now it's upwards of sixty percent of the seafood we do consume is farmed. Now, we are one of the only countries that does not have. The, uh, a framework established for ocean open open ocean aquaculture, um, and the reason that is is because of the reg you know the regulatory gobbledygook. There's just way too many hurdles. So while every other country is innovating in farming um, and seeding their oceans with responsible farming, we're behind the ball. So instead, we're buying it from those countries that are doing it. We have the largest coastline of any country in the world. Our exclusive economic zone is massive, and our oceans can be providing unbelievable. We could feed the world ten times over if we actually started to do, you know, take advantage of open ocean aquaculture. But it's not even it's not even um, it's not even in the cards up until about four weeks ago. Um, part of this COVID crisis, Trump actually completely deregulated the open ocean aquaculture program to the to expedite some of the permits to start putting it into um, domestic waters. So there could be some changes coming up. Well, it'd be good, right? I mean, if we could have more seafood, I think we'd be better off, all of us, especially during this, this well, kind of crisis with all the other animals, meatpacking and otherwise. Yeah, and I mean, look at it, right? So, so look at a lot, you know, six of the eight leading causes of death in the United States can be alleviated through the regular consumption of healthy omega-3 fatty acids, DHAs, uh, that are traditionally found in seafood. We have a, uh, we have a, um, surplus of omega-6s in our diet, right? That's what leads to hypertension, diabetes, and that comes from all the corn that's fed to the beef and chicken, et cetera, that we eat, right? So that's taking our, our, our kind of personal ecosystem out of whack. If you replace even a small percentage of that consumption, and I'm not trying to demarket beef or chicken or any other protein, I'm just saying if we start introducing more seafood into our diets, we're going to actually see a lot of those causes of death come down, which is going to decrease the cost on our overall healthcare system. So when we talk about universal healthcare and we talk about the amount of money that goes into, um, you know, this wet, you know, the symptoms of a Western diet. We ignore the fact that just the regular consumption of seafood could alleviate such a huge piece of that. So help me out here, because like I said, I'm from Western Pennsylvania, not necessarily the the seafood capital of the world. Um, familiar with tilapia and and salmon, had some lobster. What what am I missing? What's what's one thing I should get out there and try? I, I mean, and, and if I'm talking just straight U.S. seafood, um, 
you know, grouper, snapper, black cod, sablefish, um, you know, east coast halibut, west coast halibut, uh, Acadian redfish. Um, there are actually, we've got hundreds, thousands of local species, black bass, um, sheephead, you name it. Um, these are just to name a few. In addition, there's actually a lot of great farm seafood in the United States as well. Um, white sea bass, looking at Alaskan seafood, um, all the different types of wild Alaskan salmons, in addition to cod and true cod. Now, what's really fascinating about Alaskan seafood is that over 60% of Alaskan seafood actually starts out in hatcheries. So they, 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 they fortify their stocks by starting it in hatcheries and releasing it into the wild. It's, it's a form of aquaculture that's, you know, kind of skirting through loopholes in the regulations to create this open ocean mechanism. But because it starts in hatcheries and it's released in the wild, it's, it's acceptable. Um, what they do the same with white sea bass in Southern California. So, you know, less, any lesser known species is typically going to be sustainable just because it's probably not being overfished. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to think about because, like I said, I, I don't talk a lot of food, but I'm all, I'm interested in it, but I don't talk that much about it. And I'm glad you're here because it's opening my eyes to some things that I haven't came across my radar. So the next thing is, I caught that you did some work on TV. When did when did you have time to do that? <laughs> so when we were on the food truck, we we uh, we got an opportunity to go on um, what was the name of the show? Eat Street uh, on the Cooking Channel. And, um, you know, it was a blast. It was one of those one-off episodes. And, you know, I, play, I, I got created a relationship and some banter with the producers and some of the camera people. And I got a call about a year later from a connection of somebody who was one of the producers on the show. And they said, hey, we're doing a, a, a cooking channel and Food Network Canada show. We actually went back and looked at some of the footage. Would you be interested in being a judge on this um, food truck show? We're going to shoot a pilot. So I said, yeah, sure, no problem. Um, I'd love that. That's great. So I kicked that off, shot the pilot, and the pilot got picked up for 12 episodes. So I quickly got, you know, kind of um, pushed into traveling around. It was shooting up in Canada. We did episode work in the United States, 12 episodes um, for a Food Network show. So we shot that. And then maybe four months after I shot that, FYI Network, which formerly was a a and E's um, part of A and E Network, were launching food programming on their show. They came to me and said, "Hey, we're we uh, we're trying to do another show. You want to host it?" They shot me the pitch. I really liked the premise. It was called um, it was um, called Say It to My Face. Um, it was more of a restaurant remake show, um, and then you know hosted that show. So then, kind of went back and forth between that and doing some judging on Food Network, and it all just it all just kind of came out from that one episode that I shot back on the food truck before we even had the brick-and-mortar restaurant. So, so take me in behind the scenes of these shows. I mean, how, do, how do they actually look for you as being part of them? Because I see the final half-hour, hour project. How did, how did that work yeah, for you? <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, it, wasn't for, it wasn't the same for you as it was for me. No, you're talking, you know, you're talking three to four days of filming on and off over a three to four month period, right? So you, you might do studio work in Canada with the, with the contestants where they're presenting their business pitch to you, but it's not, a, it's not, maybe it's three months down the road where you actually go shoot the action shots of the episode where they're driving around in a food truck cooking. Um, and then you go back to studio for the reveal, which is, was in our case, and that show was in Canada, and that could be another month later. Right, so you're shooting these different pieces of the sh of different episodes all at different times, and I mean the beauty and the brilliance of production editing and TV is it all kind of comes together into a 30 minute episode. <laughs> so I'm upset you're thinking you said a month here, a couple months there. I mean, I don't know how any of these shows ever get made. <laughs> I, it's, 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 un <laughs> it's unbelievable unbelievable and the budgets are the budgets are unbelievable too but um you know you've got a lot of brilliant talented people who put these things together um and you know we a lot we rib on on kind of hollywood and and television a lot and by we i just mean the collective we but i mean the hard work that that goes into these shows the showrunners the you know the audio visual team members, you know the the pas it's unbelievable what these people do to put these things together um but I will tell you this one thing, um, uh, you know, some of it is produced, a lot of it is produced, right? And by that, I mean, 
it's not always spur of the moment like you think it is. But the one show, because I was a judge on Chop Jr., and that is as real as it gets. I mean, those 10, 12-year-olds, that's real. They're stressing. They're crying. They've got 30 minutes to cook that food, and uh, it, is as, it, is, it is as real as it gets. Uh, so that was a pretty cool experience. As I say, that show makes the, the junior shows make me sick because they cook better than me. I'm not going to lie. Thing. I mean, it's unbelievable. These kids are cooking. I mean, and their their knife skills are better than the majority of my cooks. Um, I mean, it really was was unbelievable. It was funny because I was a guest judge, and the other guest judge at the time, who I should tell you was single, was Megan Markle. So it was myself, Manit Shahoon, and Megan Markle, um, and it was about three weeks before it was announced that she started dating Prince Harry. So um, I consider myself royalty. <laughs> As you should. No. <laughs> well, it, well we, we were joking about bacon earlier, frying bacon, because I was trying to figure out a joke, and that puts you in the six degrees, right? So that puts me in the six yeah, degrees, yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah, bingo. Bingo. Exactly. <laughs> there we go. I like, I like what you did there. Now we're talking. Anytime, anytime we can get within six degrees of, of of the Queen of England, we're doing good. And you see, you could serve her. You could get some fish over there. You see, this is all coming together. This could work Bingo. out really well for and they you. Got, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does that make you? Does that? I mean, honestly, does that make you nervous? I'm not necessarily the Queen leaving you a bad review, but somebody coming, in, some known person coming in a can in one of your restaurants and just saying it was horrible. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean, look, that's happened. Um, you know, we've, we've had, we've had unfortunate situations like that. You, you can't win them all. Um, and you just got to be ready for it. Uh, and especially, you know, especially nowadays with social and, you know, these, these review platforms and Yelp, et cetera, everybody is just given such a loud microphone and they're empowered to become, they're empowered to become, you know, either incredibly helpful or just jerks. So, it's a it's a it's a new landscape over the past five years that have, that's um, definitely forced me to calm myself down. You know, not be that temperamental Jersey boy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you're not. It does. It seems like the West Coast, the West Coast, uh, has wore off on you quite a bit. You don't seem as Jersey as I figured you would. Well, you caught me at a good time because uh, we we you know. We got out of California about a week and a half ago. Me and the family, we hit the road in an RV, so I'm pretty calm right now. If I were in California, locked down and gagged, I probably wouldn't be as uh, lighthearted. I was going to say, we wouldn't be on the phone because I'm not sure you can get phone calls in and out right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I get my one my one phone call each day, and uh, Governor Newsom gives you 25 cents to do so. Wait, wait, wait. So that pic- the picture that I just seen, all that, all those pictures today that you that uh, the moon's over the hammock, you cooked it in an RV? Yep, yep, we're doing our RV eats. Dude. Seriously, in an RV, you cook that? Yeah. And then, you, and then, you, put, and then you put a picture on social media just to make me feel bad about how I cook. Okay, I get it. <laughs> Look, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it, 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 you know, through, through Twitter and through social, as long as I throw some pretty sauces on there, everybody thinks it's great. The family doesn't even need it. <laughs> oh, oh I, I, well, the family doesn't need it. What's up with that? No, I'm just joking. I'm yeah, joking I, well, since we're there, I've kind of beat you up about it. But if if somebody wants to follow the food, the good food looking food, where do they find you at? Um, Chef Gruel on Twitter. Um, I'm on uh, Instagram at Andrew Gruel. Um, Flatfish on uh, Instagram as well. If you really want to get drill down into the seafood. Um, what am I? Chef Andrew Gruel. I've got a Facebook page as well. Check me out on MySpace. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Man, what ha- that, that, that just went away quick, didn't it? Yeah, and you remember they tried to re, they tried to do like a relaunch of it. I'm, I'm pretty certain a few years ago that I think that bombed. Yeah, as you say, that, that went over just as well as, I don't, the, the thing, I, somebody needed to do a documentary on what actually happened there, right? Cause we were all there and then one day we were gone. Like what? What clicked? I know. We, like everybody just left at once. What was the change? What happened? I know. I mean, it is fascinating. I, I can only I can only think that uh, there was some sort of uh, nationwide hypnosis that occurred through Facebook. Um, you know, 
I, I'm convinced that Facebook has been hypnotizing me for years, forcing me to do things that I regret. <laughs> <laughs> Say things you regret, at least. I know that much. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, no, that's text message. Any text message past midnight, that's not. I'm not responsible for that. <laughs> it's good to know. So, what's next? I mean, you've you've done you've you've got 26 restaurants. I hate to ask that question at this point because I mean it's so unpredictable. But where, where, where's the big picture? I mean, like I said, I hate to even ask that because it seems like you're you've but you've got an idea. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, for me, look, you know, my passion, um, you know, intersects with business, and I think that that's key. Uh, and and it's all right now. It's about building building kind of this seafood, um, you, you know, conglomerate. And by that, I mean, I want to vertically integrate. If we can start to continue working ourselves into the supply chain and try and cut out some of the some of the links in that supply chain and use that to introduce people to more fun, whimsical, sexy seafood. At the end of the day, our mission is to get people to eat more seafood. Um, you know, our per capita consumption of seafood in the U.S., as I've mentioned, is way below where it should be and way below international average. Um, so that's where you can draw those parallels between seafood consumption and some of our, our health issues. But from there, um, you know, I think it gets into kind of food supply chain, et cetera. I'd love to continue that larger conversation as a, as a business owner on the, um, you know, the upside down nature of our food supply chain, the centralized, um, and top heavy food supply chain. I think that can be seen through seafood. Um, and if that can parlay into, uh, you know, politics and public office, then, then that's where I go one day. <laughs> politics. Oh, now I guess don't lose the number then. Cause we all have to have a con- another conversation. Um, so my my chat room is asking me because I'm I, I'm sure some of them went and checked out your Twitter instantly. You you hinted that you were looking for aliens earlier, so I'm guessing you're in Nevada. We uh, we were yeah we were in Roswell, and uh, <laughs> we we were uh, we were actually out in New Mexico, and then we just crossed over into Colorado. So did you find any? Is the question? No, we found some pretty. I will tell you, I, I saw some. Cr- some crazy, uh, uh, some crazy shooting stars, and um, you know, in the midst of me telling completely, um, uh, you know, fantasized and uh, sensationalized stories to the kids about aliens, I think I did convince myself that there was something out there. But uh, you know, who, who knows? Maybe they're maybe they're socially distancing. Well, I think we have to remember that if we're the smartest thing anywhere, I think we're we're on the verge of really screwing this up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, let's, so let's hope maybe there's something out there that can save us. Maybe. Or 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 just end it for us. One, the, one, one way or the other. We just need to know. No. <laughs> oh, it's got to be fun being out in an RV and just seeing the countryside. Especially this especially oh, now after being amazing. cooped up for so long. Well, you know, it's it, you know, we we can get as much work done from here right now. Um, I can hit the restaurants and visit the restaurants we've got in Arizona, Utah, um, New Mexico, um, and uh, and also just you know with the kids, right? You know, for the kids to be able to kind of see the world through this prism, it's 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 great. Uh, and you know, I made the joke on Twitter. I said, "You haven't lived until you've actually driven around in an RV and uh, tried to empty the septic tank." Um, but uh, I really mean that. <laughs> it's a true family bonding experience. I was going to say, I'm sh- I, what it, was that RV the actual name of the movie where they were driving around on vacation? Somebody out there knows what movie I'm talking about, I'm sure. And correct me because I'm sure that's not the title, but I'm just, I'm, you know, or all the um, the Griswold vacation movies, I'm just picturing that as well. Yeah, we call ourselves the Gruwalds. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've made many RV references from, um, what was the guy's name, uh, you know, in the, in the, uh, Christmas vacation. Um, I'm forgetting his name, but, uh, oh, in any Chase. case, there's definitely some, yeah, well, Chevy Chase, but it was, uh, the, it was the uncle, uh, oh, yeah. who sprayed the, you know, was emptying the sewage into the, into the drain <laughs> in the street. <laughs> Well, I can see it, but that doesn't help us either. Um, so, man, I, I told the chatters that I was talking. I was going to ask one of your one of their questions, and now they're just popping up all over the place. So, we're just going to tune into them here for a little bit. What's your What's your favorite seafood dish? Ah, uh, you know, 
um, if I was going traditional, it would be a Kubiak de salmon, which is a, a which is an old school French dish, um, an Escoffier dish, which is you know a side of salmon that is uh, you know smothered in uh, mushroom duxel, which is just chopped up wild mushrooms with a bit of a creme fraiche in there, and it's wrapped in puff pastry or brioche and actually baked. So think of it as like a fish Wellington, but with salmon through the center. But if I'm if I'm getting uh, you know down and dirty. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm a glutton for just a big old double-fisted fish sandwich, um, roll up the sleeves, double sauce, uh, crave-worthy, any fish, um, you know, end-to-end. That, that's, my, that's my soft spot. You're not putting cheese on this, this fish sandwich, are you? Put just, just fish and sauce? Uh, yeah, I don't do cheese with fish. I will. I did break the cardinal sin, and I'm I'm an Italian, so it's uh, definitely a sin. But I do. We do a a, um, a real popular clopster grilled cheese. It's half crab, half Maine lobster, smothered in mozzarella cheese on double toasted sourdough bread. Um, and I know it's breaking the rules, but it works because of the you know you got the sweetness of the lobster, and it stands up. You got the um, gaminess of the crab. We use that back fin meat, and then the cheese just pulls it all together. So. There's cert- certain circumstances where it can be done. Man, you're just making me hungry now. This is this is not going to end well for everybody because we're all just going to be craving seafood here in a little bit. Uh, what's your opinion on the best way to cook a lobster? Um, well, if you're going with a lobster, right, I just love pure and simple. But where people mess up is they actually boil the lobster, and then you lose a lot of that flavor in the water in which you're boiling it. So the key when you're cooking a lobster is, is you just do about two inches of water in the pan, and then you throw the lobster in when it's boiling, and you quickly cover it. So the steam is what cooks the lobster, and that helps keep a lot of the, it helps retain the moisture and keep a lot of that beautiful, sweet, succulent lobster flavor in the meat as well. That's good to know. Okay, so if I'm if I'm cooking tilapia, what's how should I do that? Uh, you know, tilapia is really one of the most forgiving fish there is. Um, and, well, that's, why, uh, that's probably why I'm cooking it. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know. With, with 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 tilapia, I say too. Look for uh, Regal Springs tilapia, which is a, a, a branded tilapia that's just out of this world. Um, so if you can find that, you're already ahead of the game. But um, you know, all tilapia is wonderful. With with tilapia, you know, I love because it can stand up to bold flavors. I love doing um, a nice blackening seasoning on there, but I add a little bit of sugar to allow it to kind of caramelize and cut through some of the richness of the fish. So my blackening seasoning might be you know paprika chili powder maybe a dried ancho chili powder, onion powder, granulated garlic, and a dash of sugar um, dusted on one side of the tilapia. Not two because it's a thin fish, so you don't want it overpowered. I sear it in a nonstick pan um, and then just finish it at the end with a dash of uh, grapefruit juice and a little pat of butter, and you're golden. We reference sauce, but I'm not sure we're talking tartar sauce, are we? On uh, which sauce? Say that again. Uh, which on uh, which sauce was this? On, on the fish the sandwich. On, Sorry. Oh, yeah. I mean, any sauce. Uh, you know, I'm a. We've got. They, my joke is sauce is boss. Um, so the one, the one thing about slapfish is we've got all of our sauces are made from scratch in house, and we're constantly changing our menu of sauces. So we're always updating and adding new sauces. I did a. Uh, I did a little demo on my tiger sauce the other day on Twitter as well, and um, that's a great compliment for fish. And, uh, you know, the ingredients there, it's a little bit of pickle juice, um, gochujang, which is a fermented Korean chili paste. So you get that umami flavor in there and that deep, 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 rich flavor from the fermentation. A little bit of mayo, a dash of mustard, and some lemon juice or lime juice in there. Perfect sauce with any fish, any sandwich. Heck, throw it on chicken while you're at it. Oh, I might be throwing something on something here in about 15 minutes, but I'm not sure what on what. But we're <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, what, what's your like besides seafood? I mean, if, if what's your guilty like the go to just grubbing it out dessert kind of thing? You know, it's funny. I'm not a huge dessert guy, so when it comes down time for the dessert course, I'm always the guy that's either going to order a cheese plate or maybe another entree. But if, you know, if my arm's going to be twisted, I like to keep it really, really simple. Um, when I make desserts for, like, multi-course meals, if I'm cooking for somebody, then I want to keep it simple. 
I always go with just really fresh berries or some, you know, some ripe fruit. I macerate it with just a touch of sugar or honey, um, and I hit it with a dash of balsamic vinegar, right? You want that acidity to make the flavors pop. I crush up some pound cake, and, um, and I just drizzle those macerated berries with the vinegar right over the pound cake, maybe a scoop of some vanilla bean ice cream, and, and that's all you need. That's my, that's my perfect dessert. So I've got to ask this because this came up on a former show, and I'm just gonna just gonna ask it. And you probably are gonna hang up, and so thanks for talking to me. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, pineapple on pizza. <laughs> Look, you know I'm not one to. I'm, I make I make jokes all the time about different flavor combinations, but at the end of the day, you know whatever we like, we like. So uh, you know, back in the day, I mean, I thought it was an interesting combination. Um, I would never go and order it. Uh, um, now. I did see recently kiwi on pizza, and that's something that could, that's a relationship ruiner right there. <laughs> kiwi? That, that's, yeah, kiwi pizza. That's, uh, I mean, the texture, I mean, kiwi is good, like, don't get me wrong, I, I do enjoy a good kiwi, but there's a textural thing going on in my mouth right now that I'm not even eating it, and it just makes me want to gag. So. Exactly, I mean, the, right, I mean, that, and that's, uh, that's the beauty of food, it can do that to you. Um, but I'll tell you what, when it comes to pizza, I am a, uh, I'm an, I'm an anchovy and mushroom guy myself. How about you? I gathered that because you said mushrooms earlier. I'm a little sausage, mushrooms, peppers, onions, the whole, throw a bunch of stuff on there kind of guy. Uh, Well, that's right. You're Pennsylvania, so you got to get a little Philly in there. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's eight hours away, but you know, some things, some things are all Pennsylvania, some things aren't. (laughs) Yeah. So... I guess this is not a politically correct term right now, but besides California, where are the hot? I'm guessing Florida. Where are the hot spots for good seafood? Um, you know, uh, you know, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, all throughout the Mid Atlantic. Maine, in my opinion, has the best seafood in the United States. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely biased. I went to college in Maine. I lived in Maine for years. I lobstered in Maine. Um, they're, uh, you know, Great Lakes region, right? We don't think about freshwater fish, but um, lake, um, you know, whitefish. Um, we've got walleye, pike, trout, another beautiful freshwater fish. So it's kind of hard. For, it's hard for me to pick. But if I was forced, I would say I would say Maine or New Jersey. Well, I'm not forcing you, so, but that's a good. I, I guess I hadn't realized. And somebody, I've been, you know, kind of messaging with different listeners, and somebody said sneaking up on us is Texas for seafood. Yeah, yeah, Gulf, Texas has some wonderful seafood. That's where you're going to get some of that beautiful black bass. Um, you've got some, um, you know, there's 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 some really really good uh, good fish. Red drum coming out of the Gulf. I mean, I love drum. That's a phenomenal fish. And you're also starting to see even some um, some closed containment um, land-based aquaculture systems through Texas and Colorado as well with some hybrid, hybrid striped bass. So once again, that's where you are seeing some of these aquaculture projects pop up, but they're being done on, um, on land, right? Um, and the reason they do that is because if you think about it, you can control the input and the output, and it doesn't touch the ocean. It's just incredibly energy inefficient, but definitely creates a good product. So, so back to our present mess for a few minutes here as we start to wind down. Um, what are the biggest hurdles that you're seeing your franchisees face? I'm sure there's a few, because like you said, it's, some are doing great and some aren't. Is that just lack of business or is it government restrictions or a combination of both? Yeah, the restrictions have had a different effect on all the different markets. So in some markets, people have been... Um, let's say the consumers are able to read through some of the fear mongering. And I'm not saying it's all fear mongering, but I mean, you know, every day there's definitely something scary out there. And sometimes it's just like, you got to ask yourself, I mean, is this clickbait or is this real? Um, and some of us are sucked into it and, and we just can't get away from it. And then that fear just compounds and compounds. So market it's where I can tell people aren't necessarily hanging on it. They're cautious, right? They're wearing masks when they go out. They're, you know, or they're social distancing, whatever. Everybody has a different version of what they're, you know, how they're being cautious. Um, but in some markets, like I said, it's just, you can tell. And, and I've talked to a lot of the consumers in some of these markets. Um, in New Mexico, for example, they just don't want to leave their houses. They don't want to order from third-party delivery. 
you know, for how long did we hear that you could catch it from a delivery driver surface to surface and wipe everything down? And then last week they come out and they're like, ah, never mind, surface to surface, it doesn't doesn't transmit that way. Yeah, and now, but the I mean, but the damage is done, right? For every one story that says that not such a not such a problem, there was a billion otherwise. Exactly. Exactly. So, so it's interesting, right? I don't know whether you've seen on the news all the, the protests, right? And yeah. and a lot of them started in Hunting, Huntington Beach, California. And everyone was saying, oh, all these people are being shipped into Huntington Beach to protest. That's not the case. I mean, Huntington Beach, Newport Beach, Orange County, California, you've got a lot of people that just say, we know this thing's real. Um, you know, you've got in Orange County, I want to say it's maybe like 1,400 cases out of 3.5 million people. So they're saying, we know it's real. We can be cautious, but we got to open. We got to go out. We've got to keep our, you know, keep things moving. We got to protect the nursing homes. We got to protect those that are at risk. But otherwise, we we do this. So that's a market where we're up almost 80% year on year. But then other markets where it's, it's not like that, you know, mid-Atlantic, um, D.C., Maryland, not that's not the case. People of people are, are locked down. They're scared. It's interesting. Okay, so uh, this question came. I'm going to reword it because I think this would be a better question. You're out on the boat and you catch a blake fish and you're throwing it back because you want nothing to do with it. They are referencing cod and catfish and flounder, but I'm just going to give it to you wide open so you can throw back anything that you don't want to deal with. Uh, alligator gar. <laughs> if you don't, if you don't know what an alligator gar is, Google it. Uh, uh, it's a it's a, it's, it's a prehistoric fish. It's an invasive species. It's one of the scariest, ugliest things you'll see. That's it. I mean, I, I mean, that's as far as you're going to go. You, you're pretty cool with the catfish and the other stuff. Oh, I love catfish. I absolutely love catfish. I love all. Uh, you know, I yeah. People, you know, people come down on catfish, but. Um, it's a uh, majority of catfish is farmed too. And, um, when it's done in those clean raceways, you don't get that muddy flavor and it's a clean, it's a real clean fish. Um, let me think maybe, um, you know, look, I like rockfish. I think it's an, inc- it, it's a sustainable species. There's just so much bones in there that, uh, I'd rather not, I'd rather not go through the work of trying to get one ounce of meat out of 20 ounces of bone. So I might throw that one back too. Well, this, this takes me back because, uh, I'm not going to tell you the long story, but I've ate some frog legs in my life. Now, where, where are you on those? Oh, I love frog legs. But it, the thing about frog legs is intellectually it's difficult to get over the fact that they look like frog le- frog like frog's legs. Um, I wish they'd be quartered or segmented. Yeah, there's no hide in that for sure, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. I, if anyone's going to eat frog's legs, I would suggest frying it and doing it buffalo style. Are the, are the days of cookbooks dead? I guess that, that's just a random thought that just popped in my head. I blurted it out. Because of YouTube no, that's and a stuff? Great, that, that's a wonderful question. Um, because, re, you know, the short answer is yes. Um, the days of cookbooks are dead. And that's why you're not seeing any any uh, editors or publishers signing on new cookbooks unless it's part of kind of a celebrity brand package. Um, and maybe the cookbook just acts as a marketing vehicle for another avenue of revenue. Um, you know, I think now it's more about, it's more about li- the, the kind of literary element of it, cookbooks or the study of a particular food item. Um, like, you know, Mark Kurlansky's done a phenomenal job of that with salt and oysters and a lot of his books, which go back and forth between the recipe side, but primarily it's the study of a particular product. Yeah. I, I mean, like I said, I, did, I hadn't really planned on asking or going that route, but it just popped in my head as I was sitting here. Which makes me grateful because you know you put all the put a few hours in of looking you up and then I just blurt out a cooking book question. That's always good. Um, <laughs> quite, what's the most exotic seafood you've eaten? Oh boy! I mean, you know, live fish. Um, you know, that's still bouncing around. Octopus that you know you kind of eat, you put in your mouth, and it's still moving. Um, you know, that's always hard to swallow. Uh, pun intended. <laughs> Uh, fish cheek, um, you know, there's, there's, I'm trying to think, I mean, you know, it's hard with seafood, right? It's, it's, um, 
it's different than, than, you know, kind of exotic meats or different parts of an animal. It kind of fish is fish. <laughs> <laughs> well, but they're all different though. I'm sure, I'm sure if I did the, uh, the TV shenanigan, right with the, uh, blindfold, I could, you could probably tell me the difference between them. Yeah. Yeah. De- yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, <laughs> uh, well, maybe hey, I love I, alligator. As I say, maybe not if I cooked them, but if they were cooked right, you probably could tell them. <laughs> this one tastes like a frying pan. No. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Now, um, I'm looking at... Uh, this is a uh, tough thing to ask. Um, as you're out and about now, and you've, like you said, you've seen the difference in market irregular... I mean, the different markets... How do you how do you think besides the restaurant business? How is like the Southwest doing as a whole with this all? Because you've been around down there. Um. Well, you know, it's hard for me to hard for me to say. I I look at the, I'm looking at all of this and judging it based upon the ways I'm seeing consumers act. Right. So, you know, I'm in Colorado now, and and my wife and I were just joking. We said wow, this is such a massive difference between even California, which is California is more restrictive right now than Colorado, but everything's closed where we are. I mean, they're not letting anybody in and people are, you know, people are, are running with masks on. Um, it's, it's just, it's, um, people are locked up at least where I am. So I think there's a major fear factor there. And even we've seen it, right? So we opened back up in Arizona for dine-in, but the lion's share of our business is still takeout and delivery even though we're fully open for dine-in. And do you see, when when does that shift? Do you have any idea? Do you have any projections? Or are you I, just happy to be still having service? Um, I think it'll shift on November 5th, right after the election, when the media flips and says, never mind, we're all good. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you're a, conspir- you're a good conspiratorial guest there. I love it. We're almost out of time, which makes it even better for me because there's something to that. Uh, yeah. No, but okay. So, uh, where can where can people find the list of restaurants and all that? It's on their, the website, which is uh, flatfishrestaurant.com. And all the socials are linked off there, and all that good stuff. And then they'll yep, just, yep. They'll, they'll search Andrew Gould to find you anywhere and everywhere. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been pretty vocal on Twitter lately, for better or worse, so you'll get some candor there. If you want something a bit more professional, then go over to Slapfish Seafood. I run that account as well, but uh, I'll, I at least keep a filter on there. <laughs> well, as you say, your uh, your personal Twitter account caught my eye, so I don't know if that was good, bad, or different, but we're here tonight, so it, it worked. Hey, then that then for me, then it's a 100% success rate. Um, it's an honor to be on, and I really, really do appreciate you allowing me to talk to you. I appreciate I appreciate you taking it uh, almost an hour here off your vacation and doing some work. So excellent, excellent. So at this point, I let you go because I've got about two minutes left, and I got to you know do some housekeeping, as you can imagine. I, I'm sure you're familiar. So, but hey, thank you, and uh, stay safe as you travel around, and stay successful. And um, the door is always open if you want to come back and talk about sustainability or politics or whatever else. Uh, grind your gears. Wonderful, wonderful. Once again, thank you so much, and looking forward to talking to you more. Thank you, Andrew. Have a good night. There you go. Sustainable. Good word for tonight. So I, I pushed him off, like I said, two minutes ago, because tonight's the nine-year anniversary of the report. Nine years. Well, almost, right? The, the 31st is the day, but tonight marks the show. 457 of them, I believe. Um, yeah, that's a lot, right? Uh, debuting the new quote-unquote YouTube studio. It's not quite done yet, but I hope if you haven't taken the opportunity to pop over there, subscribe, share. Got some tweaking to do. Got some green screen issues with the shirt. Oh, my God. But anyways, so we'll get it figured out. Got it together today, literally. Uh, got the sign carved on Saturday. Uh, that's a labor of love. There's seven hours in that bad boy. I'm really proud of it. Um, first thing that I've actually done with my hands in nine years, listen to that shit, nine years, I finally put something together that said Mallory Report on it. I haven't had any uh, banners for events or anything. I've had some business cards, but they were printed. I'm just telling you, that's the first thing, and that's probably the only thing I'll ever make with my hands. 
that take care of that. So that's a, a positive reminder that this bad boy's been on for nine years and it's not going anywhere anytime soon because that, that effort screwed the wall pretty good. So uh <laughs> guess we'll be doing this for another few years here. So, like I said, just take advantage of all the YouTube stuff. As it's going to be getting better, take advantage of the podcast. Share those out. Had some phenomenal guests. Uh, Brit, uh, ben Carey will be probably posted tonight. Brad Melzer. Man, I'm not going to sit here and try to interrupt names. But uh, now it's a great time. Man, this has been the greatest run of the show's history of great guests. Back to back to back to back to back to back. Um, something for everybody. So... Tell your friends, tell everybody, because it's coming. The it's coming. That's all I can say. I'm, I'm I appreciate everybody that listens to the show live. I can see everybody. I'm not going to try to do a roll call because I've only got a few seconds left. But man, I appreciate you all for being here tonight, and I appreciate you all being here every night. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.